Welcome to Still Scared, Talking Children's Horror. I'm Ren Wednesday, and with my co-host Adam Wybray, I'll be talking about creepy, spooky, and disturbing children's books, films, and TV. For our very first episode, Halloween episode, we're going to be talking about The Demon Headmaster by Gillian Cross. Enjoy. Some of the things we're going to talk about on this podcast will be ones that we experienced as children and some of them that we only came to as adults. But this was something that I definitely watched and read as a kid. Um, How about you, Adam? I don't remember reading it. Um, I remember the original covers and the the headmaster looking pretty ferocious, but I certainly remember the television programme. just images like Hunky Parker, the grotesque pig television character. I remember the pig's face, and <laughs> I remember there being great vines, like green I, vines. Yeah, I think that's um, a later book. I remember there being... It's, it's all sort of images of vines, and there's certainly parts from the first series that we're going to discuss that I that have definitely stuck with me. I don't know um, if I have so many clear images from the first series, um, vaguely the octopus from Octopus Dare, but mm. I certainly remember the ambience of it. Um, and I remember it being a programme that I was scared to watch, but I also enjoyed watching, that I found compelling. And yeah, I definitely did watch of my own volition. And I remember it having mm. an odd kind of melancholy... Like, obviously, it wasn't broadcast on Sunday evenings, but it had that Sunday evening melancholy to it as a child. <laughs> that it's a very grey and concrete show. And I think that kind of dreariness. It does have a touch of the Antiques Roadshow to it. Yeah, I, I, I think the kind of languid pace of the first series and the kind of dreary eeriness of it all um, mm. definitely stuck in my mind. So it, it's it's more... The memory of the ambience, I think, Mm -hmm. that stayed with me than, uh, like, the plot, for instance. Yeah. So, for people who haven't seen it or read it, the premise of the first book is that the headmaster of the school can control nearly everyone, pupils and teachers included, through hypnotism. And he uses this to create his vision of a perfectly orderly, sterile, obedient school. Um, There's a few pupils who can resist the hypnotism, um, including the main character, Dinah's foster brothers. At the beginning of the story, Dinah has just joined the school, um, so we learn about what's going on as she does. So, sort of, I guess as um, this is about children's horror, I suppose maybe talking about what is scary about it might be a good good place to start. Yeah, absolutely. I think... Part of what makes it scary is, while it's called the Demon Headmaster, it's not, certainly not 
in the first book very fantastical and though the headmaster seems to have demonic aspects it's never clearly established um you know whether he's an alien or human or a demon um mm. you know quite quite what he is but his actual power of hypnosis is one clearly rooted in reality and in fact a lot of the means at his disposal as headmaster in the, the first book and first three episodes of the TV series uh, are ones that an actual um, cruel or abusive headmaster would have, that um, mm. the children get told off. And, of course, when they go home to tell Dinah's mum what's been going on, um, she says to, to the two brothers, to Harvey and Lloyd, you know, you're lying, you're making this up, you just got in trouble for bad behaviour, that's what the school told me. And, you know, this is entirely plausible. And I think yeah. it speaks to that terrible power disparity, which you feel quite keenly as a child, between yourself and, if not so much necessarily individual teachers, just the school as an institution, and, and between children and adults. And that fear that things might happen to you or might be done to you, and you might not be believed. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it's that it's kind of that fear is heightened with the hypnosis, which means that they definitely won't be believed because all the other children have been hypnotised to repeat these rote phrases talking about how marvellous the headmaster is. Yeah, of course. So they don't even have the kind of... They do have solidarity, but they have this sort of tiny solidarity group called Splat that Lloyd and Harvey are members of and... Lloyd, I think, the leader of at the start of the first book, and Dinah, when they sort of learn to trust her, is initiated and uh, brought into the fold. Mm. So they have space of respite, but, you know, otherwise they're on their own. And the demon headmaster partly controls the school through this regime of prefects, which, again, is something based in real life, the idea yeah. of prefects being stand-ins for teachers' authority or um, the rules of the school is obviously a real one. The prefects are very good at kind of divide and rule. So even these tight friendships, and I think they are very tight, definitely, in the first two books, uh, are mm. sometimes threatened. Like in the second book, The Prime Minister's Brain, where the demon headmaster tries to uh, get access to the Prime Minister through this kind of convoluted scheme um, involving a hypnotic <laughs> yeah. video game um, <laughs> called Octopus There. And this, you know, the, the, you get the sense that there are tensions in the group that two of the younger kids uh, really don't like this game at all and don't really get the appeal of playing video mm. games and um, want to be playing outside, whereas their older friends and siblings, you know, just want to be playing video games or, or like, diner learning to programme. Oh, yeah. Um, we'll come back to the Prime Minister's brain, I think. But I did want to ask you, you say, because in my, in my copy, um, I think I have a revised, like, an updated version where um, Dinah's making a website for the group. That's interesting. So in my copy of the Prime Minister's brain, she's... Um, learning to program in basic and uh, yeah now fact, that is more appropriate for 1985 um yeah but and in fact wonderfully you get her basic coding oh wow <laughs> so I, i'll just read you i mean we'll go back to the first book but if i could just read you the start yeah, of yeah. my copy of um the prime minister's brain it starts diner 
Settling herself into the crook of the big old pear tree, Dinah began to check the computer program she was writing. 2100. Print is sun shining. <laughs> y or N. Uh-huh. Colon. Uh, quotes. Semicolon. 2110. Input. A dollar sign. Uh, line break. <laughs> 2120. If A dollar sign equals Y, then go to 2300. <laughs> <laughs> That's and, really cool. Yeah, there, is, there, there are several passages of this um, yeah. interspersed through the first two or three chapters. Okay, it's fairly revised then, because my copy is just says, Dino's building a, web, a splat website. Oh, I think that's a shame, because you really do get the sense in that original copy of Dino as a budding programmer. Yeah. Which is really cool, right? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and and that her programming smarts are partly what let her infiltrate the uh, the government security yeah. I like the idea that the diner. I mean, it might be good to talk about diner as hero briefly because I think she's an interesting hero or protagonist for a children's mm. series. But that she starts off certainly not very communicative. Yes, particularly in the books, um, she's a little more forthcoming in the TV series, but in the first book she's, well, Lloyd describes her as a robot when he first meets her, um, and she's she's very, very restrained. What's interesting is it's almost as though parallels are sometimes being made between the Doomhead Master and Dinah, I think, mm-hmm. like in the kind of emotional blunting and roboticness but of course we have access to Dinah's inner thoughts and emotional life and so we know that this is just an outward appearance that actually she's a very self-reflective and actually emotionally self-aware person Mm -hmm. but she doesn't always choose to express this that she's very reticent and careful uh, before displaying her emotions but I find it quite interesting that in one of the later Demon Headmaster books the Demon Headmaster seeks to manufacture a kind of alien robotic who is a clone, basically, of Dinah, uh, who is mm-hmm. evil, and so has all of Dinah's intelligence, but uh, yeah. none of her kind of compassion and emotional self-insight. Yeah. Um, so it's a sort of dark, uh, you know, like like, like um, um, dark or metal Mario, you know, it, it's the sort <laughs> of dark version, I guess, or uh, shadow version, is a better way of putting it, of, of Dinah. Yeah. Um, for a bit of context, um, Dinah's uh, incredibly intelligent but tries to hide it at first. And even from the first book, the Demon Headmaster is trying to find ways to use her. Um, when he works out that she's very intelligent, at the end of the book, she has to, she has to facilitate his plan to um, hypnotise the country through the TV by winning this school quiz. Uh, yeah. Yeah, which, which um, occurs on the Eddie Hare show, which <laughs> I think is one thing that's rendered actually more vividly for me in the book than it was on the television yeah. program. That in the book you really have a sense of this program of absolute, slightly, slightly unsettling chaos. That, that, that <laughs> yeah. it, it, it sounds like you know a show with 
genuine health and safety violations which, <laughs> which, which to be fair of course is true of of uh, kids tv of the late 80s and early 90s you had shows like you know fun house and <laughs> and, and and things with, with kids so slipping on gunge which was this incredibly kind of 90s fixation i think or slime yeah like, uh sort of fluorescent colored or uh yeah this sort of multi-colored goop uh, being yeah. bored on people or I, I feel like the rendition of the Eddie Hare show um in the TV series definitely uh definitely reminded me of Get Your Own Back. Oh yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> um, <laughs> which was a a 90s kids TV show where um children competed to pour gunge over parents or teachers or other authority figures yeah generally for perceived slights which would <laughs> yeah. often vary in fairness or magnitude which is a very odd thing because there's this sort of flattening of moral difference like you know um what one, one, one of them might be that the kid i don't know uh really doesn't like e- eating lettuce and their dad forced mm. them to eat lettuce you think oh okay that that's a bit mean Fair enough. But then another one might be the kid wants to go to space and his mum says, well, no, <laughs> you can't go to space. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and these are treated as sort of equally um, punishment-worthy offences. <laughs> yeah, um, but <laughs> we're definitely on a tangent now. But yeah, in the book, they describe... It describes Eddie Hare wrestling the spaghetti and the spaghetti wrestling back and sneezing which when I read that, I just had to pause for a moment and try and imagine spaghetti sneezing. It, yeah. it seems... <laughs> yeah, it does seem somewhat magical. It, it, it does, and Eddie Hare himself seems to stay, even outside his show, within this sort of role, if it is a role, as this kind of madcap prankster figure. So mm. he's described as driving through the streets in his car and the car being, you know, multicolored and having polka dots. And that when um, one of the kids sort of stops him, in fact, to try to prevent the broadcast and recording of the Eddie Hare show, because they know at this point it's part of the mm. Prime Minister's plans. And they try to stall Eddie Hare by asking for an autograph. And Eddie Hare kind of gleefully proclaims that he can't write and then sort of laughs and speeds <laughs> off. <laughs> yeah, he he does seem a lot more like a... A kind of embodiment of chaos in opposition to the uh, demon headmaster being the embodiment of order and sterility and so yeah 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 ab- absolutely um if we just um backtrack a little bit so i wanted to talk about the snowball scene which is one of is one that really stuck in my memory from having seen it as a kid and it's Going back to the theme of not being believed as a child, I think that's this is the scene where that really hits home. Because Dinah, Dinah feels like knows that something is wrong, but she doesn't know exactly what it is. So she decides that she'll break a rule um, to see what will happen. And um, she throws a snowball in the playground. But unfortunately, her foster brother Harvey wants to join in. And despite Lloyd trying to stop him, all three of them get punished. The prefects, who we'll come back to some more, 
decide that their punishment should be for them to take off their coats, scarves and gloves and sweep all the snow into the centre of the playground and then make all of that snow into snowballs. And, yeah, the the way it's... It's, it's it's very vividly written. You can imagine how painful it is having to having to touch all this wet, cold snow and form it into snowballs with your hands. And um, Harvey is described as having asthma as well. Yeah. So he's clearly, you know, in serious um, potentially danger doing this. Yeah, in the um, in the TV series, I think Dinah says. Harvey might die or something um, and Rose who's the, the prefect who's engineered this punishment just does this like horrendous like evil little smile at that <laughs> it was just like this touch like just like she was delighted at the idea that he might die um, yeah we should talk about the child actors in particular <laughs> some yeah. more um, I mean generally I'd say the child performances are variable um, yeah. although the fact that some of the child performances are more stilted is okay because it's oddly in keeping with the atmosphere and thematics of the show because, of course, the kids are meant to be hypnotised a lot of the time. Yes. Um, so, you know, that some of the kids sound like they're just parroting back lines really doesn't matter. And actually... That's true, actually, yeah. If anything, to the strength of the show. But, but some of the child actors are very good. And I think Catherine Wyeth is particularly good, I think, as Rose... And as you've kind of said, she has this genuine malevolence, um, which is actually is quite unsettling. That I don't know if she'd experienced bullying herself, and she's kind of channeling that back, or, or you know where that's coming from. But she does a very good job at kind of subtly communicating the fact that some of the the prefects are just sort of robotic like sentinels whereas you get the mm. sense that the character of rose is genuinely a pretty nasty piece of work yeah no she's incredible um she um she is one of my strongest memories of the tv series and i was genuinely surprised to watch it again and see that she is about 14 years old um <laughs> you know she's a she's a child but she has such a villainous presence <laughs> And um, I think she becomes the secondary villain in the first three episodes. Oh, yeah, and she becomes... I mean, she's kept in as a character. I remember they do things with her in later seasons. Yeah. Um, Oh, 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 do they? Yeah, yeah. um, So I I, I imagine... Yeah, she certainly... She isn't in the last three episodes, but she certainly reappears. Um, Oh, good. (laughs) Um, Yeah, if you look at the IMDb page she's credited for 10 episodes in total ah. um so there's certainly a lot more of her i mean to put that in context the actor playing the demon headmaster terence hardman is credited for 19 episodes oh brilliant yeah no i think she's sort of threatening to upstage terence hardman at points in this the first three episodes she's just so good <laughs> yeah i mean i mean hardman certainly is a, a chilling presence that mm. you do get the sense of him as implacable, that, you know, he's entirely unmoved by pleas for mercy, right? Mm. Which I think is what makes him scary, is that he seems 
the character of the demon headmaster seems to not have a compassionate bone in his body. Yeah, um, and he's watching uh, uh, in the snowball scene when uh, at one point Dinah says, "This is too much. The headmaster won't stand for this. Surely this this punishment is too is too barbaric." And then she looks up and sees the demon headmaster watching from the staff room. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a nice kind of pullback and reveal moment, really, mm. that she still has faith at this point that, you know, the corruption doesn't run that high. Yeah. Right, and that, oh, oh yes, of course it does. Um, yeah. <laughs> it, it is interesting that that, is, that same kind of um, journey from trusting implicitly the system to incredulity to then the horrific realisation that no, they're in on it um, is given to Robert who's a minor character in the second book, The Prime Minister's Brain uh, yeah. so mm-hmm. he, he, he um, tries to report the machinations to um, the uh, Demon Headmaster who's now in the guise of the computer director mm. um, who's conducting a, a quiz of sorts or a test to find uh, the best computer brain uh, of the year or something. But basically, he's trying to root out kind of kids who are clever with computers so they can hack mm. into this system for him. But the character of Robert, who's one of the brains, uh, so-called, uh, who's along for the competition, tries to explain to the uh, computer director or the demon headmaster what's going on and says, look, look we're being treated, this, this, can't, this isn't acceptable. And of course, again... The demon headmaster mm. or computer director, uh, you know, is is completely nonplussed. <laughs> you know, he, <laughs> in, in fact, he, he hasn't taken away uh, for 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 being outspoken. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's. Uh, he doesn't have a name apart from the various titles that he assumes. I don't know if he gets a name later. Probably yeah, not. I, it's funny because that's why I was sort of struggling a second there to think, yeah. well, do you still call him the Demon Headmaster? Well, yeah. the Demon Headmaster is his role, but you can't really just call him the Demon. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't know if it's like Stephen King's It and that, you know, there's some kind of primal, I don't know, arachnid-like uh, in it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's some sort of e- e- evil elder god behind it all. Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> Yog Shoggoth or something is <laughs> um, actually just puppeteering these vessels. But, um, I mean that that makes it even scarier. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um. <laughs> too rich for my blood. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a bit far, Adam. Um. <laughs> um, but I um, think the the other kids are really good as well. Um, I mean the lead the lead trio. I'd say, of um, Dinah, Lloyd and Harvey. Uh, so Francis, Amy, Gunnar Cawthry, and Thomas, I think it's Sicarius, um, mm-hmm. it might be pronounced. Um, they're, they're all really good, I think. Like, yeah. Francis, yeah. Amy as Dinah doesn't quite have the... communicate the kind of alienation, perhaps, that Dinah's definitely experiencing in the first book. Um, mm. You know, she's definitely a much warmer presence than the diary yeah. in the book. Um, I think she seems quite vulnerable, basically. I think both in the book and in the programme in different ways, Dinah is a, a very likeable um, character. Yeah, yeah, I agree. 
which which is interesting and and good because uh, she's not necessarily likable in the conventional ways you might expect from a children's book. She's not massively gregarious. She's mm-hmm. not she's not especially funny. She is fairly kind of serious as uh, yeah. child protagonists go. She isn't one for epic adventures. Clearly, in the Prime Minister's brain, she'd rather be programming. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I think she's shown to have a kind of integrity, sort of belief in goodness and the truth, which stands firm. And which means it's all the more devastating for her and us as readers when she's hypnotised into saying things which she knows to be lies because Mm -hmm. that clearly is a a violation of her character, and she's very confused as to why she finds that she's parroting lies which she knows she doesn't believe. And, you know, she's not a liar, so she's sort of troubled by this, because she realises, I think, quite quickly that something's wrong and something is being done against her will. Yeah. Um, This might be a good time to, um, to talk a bit more about the Prime Minister's brain, because there's this sort of escalation that happens um, between the first and second books, where, um, as you say, in in the first book, she's sort of parroting these lines that the headmaster has has hypnotised her to say, and she doesn't know why she's saying them. But in the second book, where it's this uh, images of these octopuses that are hypnotising people, it has an emotional effect on her. And that when she looks at this octopus, she feels, uh, well, when she gets the letter that says that she's won the competition, but she needs to um, get this very expensive computer to come to the final. Looking at this octopus makes her feel angry and um, overwhelmed with emotion at the idea that she wouldn't be able to do it. Um, And it's very out of character. And I don't think it, we really see any more of this in the book, but it is an interesting ramping up of the the hypnotism that this time it has an emotional effect. Yeah, and it's also compared explicitly late in the book to a drug or alcohol addiction. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that Dinah and the other kids are affected by it and... I find it quite interesting that the two kids who aren't affected by it, which is Harvey and... Ingrid. Is it Ingrid? Yeah, I was yeah. trying to think of it Mandy or Ingrid. Yeah, Ingrid. Uh, that they're, they're the two youngest kids in the group. Mm-hmm. Um, and they aren't particularly affected by it. But the other kids kind of crave this octopus, um, mm. digital octopus on the screens. <laughs> and, and in the book, every time... Uh, it comes up, you have the op- the word octopus in bold, and then sis, 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 octopus, <laughs> which I rather like. And it, it does it on the, um, in the TV series, it, it, it goes, octopus. <laughs> Just sort of hisses it in the background. Um, um, but uh, one thing I liked about that, that if we think of the show, and, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to sort of overread it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but if it is functioning as an allegory of sorts for a repressive or autocratic political regime, um, mm-hmm. then while the first series is yeah, more of a fascist state being depicted, um, mm-hmm. so it's focusing on the institutionalisation of order 
through orderlies, basically, you know, through a sort mm-hmm. of sequence of command and a sort of stratification of power that you have this guy at the top who's making his uh, underlings do things who, you know, then uh, are willing to use torture and fear to keep mm-hmm. uh, keep the kids in their place. Whereas it strikes me that the, the second one moves more towards a kind of Stalinist um, kind of depiction or a depiction... Um, of autocratic government you got in communist regimes, and I say this because uh, a lot of my academic writing <laughs> is on uh, communist era Czechoslovakia. And one thing that I've noticed reading um, testimony through people who lived through that time is uh, the idea of internalised censorship. Mm-hmm. So just the threat that you were being watched all the time and that your neighbours might inform on you was enough to make artists censor their own work to the degree that, yes, there were formal censorship bodies in the way there were under Nazism, but certainly not in the same way and not to the degree. Um, it's more that because you didn't quite know if you'd get in trouble for doing something transgressive, you know, making a transgressive mm-hmm. piece of art, you'd be more likely to err on the side of caution. And because you didn't know which of your family members or friends might be an informer, um, and, you know, there are a lot of party members, that you sort of internalise these things. So at a certain point, physical violence, even though the threat of physical violence certainly might still be present, isn't even necessary because the fear is internalised and sort of does the work for the state, basically. Mm Uh, I think you kind of get that to a degree in the second book, this idea that the demon headmaster uh, or becoming the computer director doesn't always have to do that much. Yeah. You know, once he's set up the system, he can kind of sit back and let the system do its work for him. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he set up a very elaborate... uh, Is it the... uh, the office building where the the final takes place where his where the children are going to break into the prime minister's computer for him is yes, a very it... elaborately ex- constructed uh automated system yeah governed uh, by a supercomputer basically yeah so um... it is staffed to a degree um there are sort of people in white lab coats who do some work, seemingly, or work as guards. But apart from that... But none is... of them make very, really very, any impression at all, unlike the prefects. The yes, prefect. yeah, that's a good point. They're very um, anonymous and autonomous, yeah. right? Um, <laughs> where what, what does make an impression instead are the little robots, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, in the warehouse where all the food's kept are these uh, little robots with extendable arms they put things on the shelves and um, similarly there's a kind of robot assembly line producing the meals for the children in, in the second yeah. book. And uh, this was written in 1985 so this was somewhat more fantastical than it is now. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's a good point that it's got this kind of techno-futurist thing going on almost mm-hmm. that now seems kind of more banal than it would have done at the time. Yeah. Um yeah. Yeah, I wanted to mention a little bit about the context of the time, just because 1985, 
when this is written. Um, yeah, so it's written sort of, quite a bit before the television series. So the television yeah. series um, ran from 1996 to 1998. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got sort of both... In the TV series, you have sort of both the context of both times kind of going on. Um, and I feel like maybe the 80s influence um, is kind of the idea of these sort of whiz kid kids um, <laughs> who are hacking into um, a government computer kind of uh, fears, a lot of fears then of what young people might do with this new technology that they don't really understand and they could break into military secrets or whatever. Um, yeah, that's certainly a very 80s concern. Although I'm just looking up when the first Hackers film came out. Okay, so Hackers is 1995. Um, what about um, War Games? Ah, War Games is a bit earlier than that. That's a good point. Yeah, I was thinking more of that kind of um, cyber dystopia kind of aesthetic uh-huh. going on in the 90s, right? Um, yeah. Like I, I, I think of something like like hackers or lawnmower man, right? Um, <laughs> I have no idea what that is. <laughs> or or, or, or existines, for instance. The oh gosh, yeah. Film, and obviously the demon head master never quite reaches, you know, <laughs> that level of technological horror or body horror. Um, mm. But certainly, this dystopian vision of an automated and computerized system and a society of greater abstraction. Yeah. Um it, it, it is definitely present in the second book and 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 goes forward as the series progresses. I mean, I say you get sort of genetic engineering coming in as a topic um in one of the later yeah. seasons. So, you know, I mean they're not quite after school specials, but yeah, they are mm-hmm. definitely engaging with issues at the time. Yeah, and there's also the I think quite 90s uh fear of children becoming addicted to computer games that might be coming in there a bit and the idea of the online realm as this kind of other and uncanny other space right Mm -hmm. um of sort of limitless imagination but potentially limitless (laughs) horror (laughs) (laughs) like like like, like, you know when you watch sort of adverts for that time for home computers and the internet there's this real sense of sort of awe but also abstraction, that that kind of 90s trope that you're seeing a resurgence now of, I, you know, I've used some VR uh, technology recently, uh-huh. um, and I found it really interesting that within the VR world, to demarcate where in the real world are walls you can't get past is a, mm-hmm. gre- is a green glowing grid. Oh, and really? Yeah, uh-huh. we, 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 which is such a kind of 90s uh, <laughs> I- I- image of the digital world. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I, I found that quite interesting. I mean, you know, around the time I would have been watching The Demon Headmaster, I would have also been going on trips with my uh, my now, I can see, incredibly patient father. Um, I don't think I appreciated this quite enough at the time uh, to, 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 to Sega World in uh, London, Trocadero, yeah. which became Funland, uh, which mm-hmm. was, at the time, the largest arcade in Europe. And obviously had all sorts of arcade games, but also had sort of early and proto-VR technology. And mm-hmm. 
immersive indoor rides, like, you know, rides where you mm. wear a headset and simulators and things like that. Um, it makes me think of, um, do you know that series one episode of Buffy where there's a demon on the computer? Yes, I do. I do. I do vaguely remember that one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, um, and that Goosebumps book. Um, what is that like? I, something like is not it came from the web, but it, no, it's, it, it's it, I think it is. It came from the internet. <laughs> but, but, but it, and it is literally right. A kind of digital a cgi spider that comes out of the computer i think yes out of the world wide web yeah yes. yeah uh, <laughs> <laughs> and from thence the hilarity in yeah we're sure to talk about goosebumps i'd say probably on several episodes because it would be impossible because <laughs> it's um yes there's there's a lot of goosebumps to talk about i mean certainly uh, if you look up children's horror on goodreads um, mm-hmm. It is just R.L. Stein after R.L. Stein, <laughs> like so much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I, what what do you think that the Demon Head Mask and the Prime Minister's Brain have that the Goosebumps books don't have? For instance, you know, what do you think makes them special in terms of being children's books and also children's horror? I mean, I think probably generally more of a a deeper a deeper look at issues than the goosebumps books generally go in for i think i think as you were saying at, at the start it just the, the atmosphere of both the books and the tv series is this very chilly downbeat sort of feeling to it that is not quite as campy as goosebumps Books. Yeah, I wouldn't quite call it campy. That's true, and there might be kitschy elements, but it's not flamboyant. Mm. I mean, it's not—it's not an extravagant show, really. Um, there is something quite down to earth about it. I'm not saying it's continuing in the British tradition of kitchen sink realism, <laughs> <laughs> but it has that kind of dreary workadayness to it which I think is what made it disturbing as a child that it feels that it does take place within a believable world that is our own or like our own rather than a kind of more fantastical realm yeah I think so um I think and I think there is something quite British about that yeah I think I mean if you look at sort of 70s horror right you have this sort of interest in parochial horror almost or kind of folk horror so it struck me, I mean, this is often taught, talked about under the rubric of hauntology. Mm-hmm. So I've never managed to find a coherent <laughs> definition of what on earth hauntology is. <laughs> um, it seems to be something like um, the, the uh, I don't know, the unveiling of what should be veiled by nostalgia or, or, or giving... Um, the veils of nostalgia are kind of ontological presence, taking what was kind of subtextual and uh-huh. under the surface in these 1970s horror films and programmes and bringing them to the surface and taking what was on the surface and putting that under that you... Like, <laughs> if you think about something like Look Around You, I think Look Around You has this thing where the most kind of staid aspects of 1970s educational videos... Going to become mm. the creepiest, yeah. 
it's the dreary synth music and the you know commands to have your textbooks ready that, that become <laughs> troubling and unsettling uh, yeah. whereas all the kind of fantastical kind of magical stuff is done in a very matter of fact way okay yeah yeah um uh-huh. you know i don't think the demon headmaster is necessarily part of any kind of bigger tradition but i definitely get what you mean when you say that it is so specifically british and it does strike me as kind of doing almost for the urban environment um, what those 70s kids horror programmes like The Owl Service or The Changes did for the rural or the mm. um, the countryside. The, you know, in, in those stories, um, it's very much about these sort of hidden energies and currents um, under old England, mm-hmm. uh, drawing on ideas from the folk revival of ley lines and uh, mm-hmm. wicker and, you know, ancient kind of stuff you get in the wicker man as well. Um, whereas I think, like, the rhythms in the Demon Headmaster are far more urban, basically, yeah. and far more kind of regimented that it's a kind of Britain's sapped of vitality, you know, it's this <laughs> a portrait and of a kind of brutalist concrete Britain. Yeah, and there's a scene where they're, um, where they're trying to find the, the building uh, where the final takes place, and it says that it's an island, and they're they're stuck on the tube, and it's stuffy and horrible, and they're like, oh, won't it be lovely to go to this island to the running water and the the clear air, and they and they get there, and it's a traffic island. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there's there's no respite really. Um, no, no, that's that's an interesting point. There is very little respite in both, <laughs> but you know, the respite comes right at the end of the first book. And mm. right at the beginning of the second book, and um, it's it's maybe slightly lampshaded, but the the rest of Splat spend a lot of time climbing up a rubbish chute. Um, yeah, a lot. A lot of time. Right, like, like at, about... at one point, one point, one of them complains about how they've done nothing but climb up a rubbish chute, <laughs> which seems <laughs> but... yeah, like a bit of a meta joke. <laughs> but um, I'd say about, yeah. about a quarter of the Prime Minister's brain. I think yeah. it's fair to say, as certainly concerning those characters, is them climbing mm. up the rubber chute. <laughs> but, it, but it's interesting because the concern with waste seems to have changed. It, it, it's handled differently in the Prime Minister's brain. So we're talking about Eddie Hare in The Demon mm. Headmaster and, uh, you know, the sort of horror, the description of the, the gunge and the spaghetti monster and the kind of chaotic mm. mess of this TV show and the kids loving this and reveling in it uh, while you know it's deeply offensive to the kind of staid and orderly uh, demon headmaster but uh, mm. obviously in the prime minister's brain uh, the kids aren't you know uh, <laughs> gleefully jumping for joy at having to uh, climb up a rubbish chute um, and you know there are quite sort of long descriptions of carrot peelings and uh, <laughs> yeah, other and stuff you know tea land- bags and yeah, yeah. Um, and it is it's quite grubby, right? It, it sounds so mm-hmm. sticky and unpleasant that it is. It's, it's quite vivid. Um, I don't know if it's just being set up in contrast to the sterility of the computer lab. There's something about you know how the prime minister's plans don't factor in waste, or that that <laughs> it's always about repressing that which is messy, yes. that which isn't orderly. Um, but also, Adam, also it's the rubbish chute that saves them. 
Ah. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, so yeah, yes, that, this is true. So at, at the end of the Prime Minister's brain, uh, the Prime Minister rigs the computer system. So he, he's ha- he's got the kids to hack into the system for him. And um, he takes a helicopter, which uh, <laughs> is a bit foregrounded. There's uh, quite a lot of uh, talk about this helicopter early on in the book. So we know it's going to come up again. Yeah. And uh, the the roof of the building opens and he takes this helicopter to fly to Downing Street. And to stop the kids from foiling his plans, he rigs up the computer system so that any interference with it will, will set off uh, an explosive device, basically, and it will set the building aflame. And mm-hmm. um, this is hidden within the elevator. So mm-hmm. uh, they, they, they do... Uh, try to try to prevent his plan and and eventually succeed and so the the elevator catches light and so as you're saying that yeah so so they have to escape and the only way they can escape is down through the rubbish chute Mm. and it is a pretty dark scene in which the children vote to stop the demon headmaster computer director even if it means burning to death in an office building yeah, and it's very um, clear that that's what the stakes are. Yeah. I think, you know, they, they basically outright state, right, if we do this, we're probably going to die. <laughs> so are we doing this? <laughs> yeah, um, uh, which is probably uh, a good point to... I wanted to just talk about the the headmaster's um, complete lack of qualms about harming, physically harming children. Um yeah, so please. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, right um, from the the first book, it's it's a theme because in order to test that that Dinah is actually hypnotized, he sticks a pin in her arm, and one time she's pretending she's just pretending to be hypnotized, and he um, he pricks her with this pin. Uh, to check and um, yeah, and I've I've highlighted that that line actually in my copy. Um, mm. It's a really chilling last line. Um, so um, if you don't mind, I I'll just mm. read this last passage. So he's, he's she's going under hypnosis, and it says, "But the words in her head drifted off into silence and floated away on a great tide of sleep, as she slumped slowly forward in her chair, uh, and then." This time, she did not feel a thing when the headmaster stuck the pin into her arm. Mm. It, it, it's a genuinely <laughs> quite chilling sentence, I think. Just the kind mm-hmm. of matter-of-factness about it. And I think also in the, um, in, in the TV series, um, the headmaster quite, uh, quite threateningly opens a letter with sort of his old-fashioned letter openers that are basically a dagger um which um, <laughs> like is a little bit of foreshadowing and of, um, co- of course in the third episode um the kids are confronted trying to halt the recording and broadcast of the eddie hair show uh, yes. and do you want to say what yeah, the okay. headmaster does <laughs> so the headmaster finds them at this critical moment and he brings with him the prefects and a group of hypnotized children um, when Splat tries to stand up to him and say, no, we're not going to let you do this, he tells the children, um, I quote, in front of you are six straw dolls that are no longer needed. You will advance on them and pull them to pieces. 
um, and Terence Hardiman really relishes that line. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, and the children advance on on the members of Splat and start pulling at their clothes and tugging their hair, and they they will they will pull rend, them to pieces. Them apart, yeah. Um, yeah. No, I, I think um, that's one thing the books and and then the program do very well is. The sense of threat does feel mm. very real. <laughs> you, you don't get the the sense that the team headmaster is kidding around. As he said, he no. definitely doesn't have any compunctions when it comes to <laughs> murdering children. Yeah, um, and I thought this was um, actually a very good use of the 90s CGI in this scene. Oh, um, right. you have to remind me because it's a little. Um, I watched. I watched the uh, the series uh, a, couple yeah. mu- a, a couple of months back now. So. Oh, okay. So. When he tells the children in front of you are six straw dolls, you see from the children's perspective um, like an animation sort of overlay of those kind of those straw, like those corn dollies, like yeah, I know straw, what you mean, like straw corn, dolls, corn yeah, dolls, yeah. Um, just overlaid over over the members of Splat, um, <laughs> and it's it's very simple, but it it really works. <laughs> well, I think that could be said of, of the series and the books of the whole that they're not doing anything, mm. you know, massively fancy. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the narratives are simple, um, but they do work. Um, you know, I was quite surprised rewatching the program at how well it holds together, and that you know, I found it perfectly watchable as an adult. I certainly mm. didn't feel I had to watch it ironically or just nostalgically. Um, you know, I, I did find it genuinely. Yeah, it's it's patchy, but I I found it genuinely unsettling and um, quite engaging. And I did think some of the acting, say especially by Catherine Wyeth playing Rose, you know, really good. Yeah. Um. So um, I just wanted to finish off with one last thing, which is um, that Gillian Cross is sometimes using the Demon Headmaster books as a way of making comments about the educational system. And Mm -hmm. she's sneaking in, you know, her opinions about the educational (laughs) system. Um, Certainly, the demon headmaster's hypnosis in the first book is meant to resemble learning by rote, I think. Right, because this was... Yeah, this was written under a Tory government, as we're now again... And certainly Michael Gove as education secretary had very old fashioned ideas about um about learning, I think. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now this is before I mean while there are probably things to take issue with with what the mm. Blair how the Blair government changed education, it did also mark some really progressive shifts in terms of how kids learn and say, taking a subject like history and making it far more about how you analyse evidence and how you interpret mm-hmm. historical sources. Whereas I think before that, or certainly still under Thatcher, you had um, a system which was still based more in rote learning, that you know, learning about history was more learning the facts, being able to reel off a list of the kings of England. Mm-hmm. And you see that, obviously, this is how the kids are learning, that um, when they're in the playground instead of playing they just uh, stand together in small rings and 
chant off uh, lists of facts. Yeah. And uh, and it's definitely um, it's definitely seen as uh, regressive and old-fashioned. And in the book, Dinah says, um, "Oh, the head teacher," and one of them corrects him and says, "Oh, you have to say headmaster." <laughs> oh, <laughs> that, that's nice. Which is definitely a throwback to uh, previous times. I mean, I think that 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 was old-fashioned by the eighties presumably. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I found um, quite a direct indictment of the Demon Headmaster's teaching methods mm-hmm. um, that Ingrid and Dinah are talking about the Eddie Hare show and Ingrid says, I love it, especially the great school quiz. The question's so hard, I can never do any of them. Um, Dinah replies, that's because we're all taught parrot fashion. The questions in the quiz are puzzles, and no one in our school is encouraged to think. It's quite the wrong mm-hmm. quiz for our, our sort of school. Um, <laughs> y- yeah. So. Yeah. And it looks like from... The, so there was an interview uh, I read in, I think, The New Statesman? Oh, yeah. With Gillian Cross uh, about the new Demon Headmaster book. And she was mm-hmm. saying how, you know, it's been 15 years since she wrote one, and going back to the Demon Headmaster and writing a new book the school system has changed a lot in that time so you know I suspect from what you're saying that the new one you know takes aim at Ofsted for one thing and the academization of schools oh yeah Mm -hmm. so teaching you know kids as kind of Matrix as a, a business yeah 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 exactly teaching as a business as little consumers and thinking too much in terms of quantifiable outcomes and what you can Mm -hmm. plot on a graph rather than um, any kind of deeper, more nourishing (laughs) education. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I'd be interested to read it to see how she depicts this new school and, yeah, if her opinions have kind of changed and uh, what the Demon Headmaster will be like now, you know, what means of control, whether he'll still use hypnosis. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, or will he have a different a different power for a different time? Yeah, um, I don't know. I don't know what that uh, flash animations. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> um, I think that would have been very early two thousands. So, uh, <laughs> heaven knows. Heaven knows what what it what it'd be now. <laughs> it's, um, it's been a while uh, since, since I was in school. Um, I'm just. While we're talking about politics, um, did did you think that he resembled John Major? Am I? Is that a reach? I felt. I, I think. I mean, I think if you went as John Major to a Halloween party, <laughs> yes, people might mistake I... you for the Dean Head. <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, on 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 on, on that, on that, um, on that, yeah, suitably ghoulish <laughs> image. <laughs> we'll end the um, things here. So, um, do you want to uh, do the credits today? Uh, since <laughs> you're probably going to yeah, do a better job of so, it than me. <laughs> so, um, our theme music is by Maki Yamazaki, and you can find their work at makiyamazaki.com. Um, their outro is by Joe Kelly. And you can find 
his band Etao Shin, which is E-T-A-O-S-H-I-N at etaoshin.co.uk. And I want to just give an extra thank you to Matt Dillon, who is the War Llama on Twitter, um, because it was thanks to his podcasting panels at Nine Worlds that I felt like I could actually do this at all. So thank you, Matt. Thank you. Um, So you can find me on Twitter at at Ren Wednesday and Adam uh, you can find me on Twitter at Al Gore Rhythm um, with underscores the uh, <laughs> punding algorithms yes <laughs> and uh, um, did, should we just say thank you for the art as well um, yeah uh, by Letty, Letty Wilson um, and I will put a link to her her website in the show notes so yeah um and of course the demon headmaster by julian cross (laughs) okay (laughs) um adam we should probably come up with a sign off i forgot about this oh keep it spooky (laughs) (laughs) yeah um until next time keep it spooky maybe we'll come up with a better one (laughs) (laughs) bye creepy kids (laughs) (laughs) okay (laughs) 